Grace in all its glory. Clearly, that's the theme of the life of Christ, grace in all its glory. Who is he? What does the world understand about that? Why he came to earth as a human being, what he did. And for those of us who know biblically, we don't know intuitively, we know biblically, what is my commitment to him? What is your commitment to him? Before we get into our text in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you can make your way there. But Ephesians 1, written by the same author to the same church, the church at Ephesus, wrote in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he, that is, God the Father, hath chosen us in him, that is, God the Son, the Lord Jesus, when? before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, that is, before the Father. In love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, that is, to the Father, according to the good pleasure of his, the Father's will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he the Father hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in Christ. So God the Father provided sinful man the blessing of grace in all its glory in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 3, 16 gives us a word picture of grace in all its glory. If you've turned there, let me, uh, let me recap very quickly, First Timothy preached it here um, 29 years ago on Sunday evenings in the fall of, of 1993, just when I'd become senior pastor going into uh, the, uh, uh, the winter of 94. Maybe it's time to preach this again. It's been that long. But you'll remember that the theme of the book of First Timothy is church order, how to do church. To the degree that in this very chapter, in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, you'll see in verses 1 through 7 the parameters, the qualifications, the specifics for those who would function as an elder pastor in the local church. And then in verses 8 through 14, uh, verse 13 I should say, the role of deacons and of course wives of the pastor, the wife of the deacon as well. And so uh, it is dealing with church order relative to leadership in the, in the majority of chapter 3. And then you'll notice in verse 15, the Apostle Paul said, I want to come and be with you, but I've written so that the church will know how to conduct itself, so that we will know how to function. And then immediately following that, the very next verse is what I want to be our focus today. But before we get to that, look what immediately follows that verse. It's chapter 4 and verse 1. The Spirit speaks expressly, that is, very clearly, very definitively, very distinctly, that in the latter times, in the latter times, 
uh, are from the resurrection of Christ until the return of Christ. These are the latter days, and so far they've stretched out 2,000 years. In the latter times, um, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, and then going on to describe that. And so you have sandwiched between proper church order, specifically with leadership, how the church is to conduct themselves in chapter 3 and verse 15, followed by the heresy which will rise up from within you. Right in between that is verse 16 uh, of chapter 3. You all following how that plays out? Which makes chapter 3 and verse 16 uh, of monumental importance uh, because it is, it is the transition point that we should know, namely, grace in all its glory. And it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the nations, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This verse gives us a summary of the person and work of Christ. And it begins by saying, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's a difficult phrase. It's a bit wordy in English, but it simply means that what was once concealed is now revealed. That's a biblical mystery. What was, it's not something which is mysterious in the way that we think, ethereal, but it's simply something which had never been revealed or uncovered before, but is now being revealed, namely the personification of godliness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, Jesus is grace in all its glory. And I want us to take a look at that. And I'll be quick to add the outline that I'm going to share with you uh, is similar. The exegesis is, is practically identical identical uh, with the commentators that I have consulted, although not all of our conclusions are always exactly the same. Uh, One commentator puts an emphasis on this particular aspect. Another commentator puts an emphasis on another aspect. Uh, And of course, as long as we all understand that there are uh, many applications, there's one interpretation, many applications to any given passage of Scripture, uh, then we're on good ground. Chapter 3 and verse 16, the first thing we see is God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh, speaks of Christ's virgin birth. Now, the word manifest is very interesting. The root of it, and this surprised me, and I, had, I guess I had not studied it in, in pushing three decades, and I didn't remember this at all, but uh, the root is the same root for light. It's where we get the English word photon. And so it is saying, uh, God, uh, shine the light uh, in, of course, the flesh, in, of course, the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He turned the light on and mankind was able to see God. Now, that is a profound statement that the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, gave to the church at Ephesus because God is invisible. God is spirit. And yet, this is saying God was manifest in the flesh the light 
turned on and we saw God in human form. That is profound theology. And, and it's something that, that uh, Paul wanted the church leaders to know, wanted the church to understand uh, as they are ordering things, and that he wanted them to know uh, and really own this truth because seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, was immediately to follow. Do you all appreciate the importance of that? God, God turned on the light, and all of a sudden, he's present among us. That is an amazing truth. You see, folks, <clears throat> Christmas is not about gifts. It's not. Nothing wrong with gifts. And I'm trusting that um, some of those cards uh, th- that Kathy and I received, I'm sure trusting there's lots of gifts in there for us uh, that you all gave us this year. Uh, <laughs> It's not about gifts. It's not about family gatherings as much as we enjoy that. It's not about food and and banquets. Or it's not even about people being kind to one another. It's not about that. It's not about primarily about brotherly love or any of those things. No, it's about God who came to earth as man. That's the story of Christmas. The incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us. In John 1, verse 1 and 14, tell us, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was face to face with God. And who was this Word? And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God turned the light on Himself For mankind to see, it had never happened before. It's a mystery. It was concealed. Now it's being revealed. Here he is in the flesh, in human form, God with us. Wow, that is the beginning. (laughs) Really the totality of the Christmas story, uh, God with us. And then we see in verse 16, he was justified in the spirit. Now, there's a, a number of ways that you can interpret this, and I'm, I'm interpreting it and applying it chronologically to the earthly ministry of Christ. Some even believe uh, this is talking about uh, the resurrection. Uh, I'm finding uh, it, to, it to be more consistent um, with the chronology of his life. He was born, and then he grew up, uh, and he became a young man, and all during that time... Uh, His life was being verified. It was being justified. How? In how he lived. His virtuous life. Spirit of God inspired the writing of Scripture. And Scripture clearly declares the impeccability of Christ. A big word, uh, to be impeccable, means to be perfect, to be flawless, to not be tainted. And he lived an impeccable life all of his years. He was sinlessly perfect. What must family and friends have thought when this two-year-old was not terrorizing the other two-year-olds and fighting over whose truck it was in the sandbox, but that he, uh, that he shared? I mean, it's an amazing thing to me uh, that not only was he born uh, without the sin nature, he never, though tempted in, in all ways, in fact, let me share uh, that uh, verse for you so that you can write that down, uh, Hebrews 4, 15b, that he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. How could he be without sin? Because this is God. Uh, how could he be tempted? Because he was man. And so he was utterly able, infinitely able to identify with us because He was man, he was a human, and tempted in every way that we're tempted, and yet condescended to us in that he is God, and he became 
one of us. So only God is impeccable. And the Spirit of God justified or declared Christ righteous by his virtuous life. Well, in what way did it need to be vindicated? In what way did it need to be uh, validated, maybe for lack of a better word? Well, by virtue of what Jesus said. He said in John 10, verses 30 through 33, that I and my Father are one. Wow, what a statement. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone, again to stone him. They were already wanting to stone him. But when he said that, they said, okay, let's go get him. Let's go get that blasphemer. Jesus answered and said, many good works have I shown you from my father. I've I've healed. I've raised the dead. For which of those do you stone me? The Jews answered saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. They knew exactly what he was saying. Of course he claimed to be God, because he was and is God. And they recognized that. And so the Spirit of God had all of these things penned through the writers of Scripture so that we would see he claimed to be perfect, and in fact, his virtuous life demonstrated that. Speaking to the religious leaders in John 8, 56 to 58, says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see me, in my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that was all, that would have been uh, blasphemy to them just on face value. But when he used the phrase, I am, he caused them to remember what? The I am of the Exodus. When God led Israel out of Egypt and delivered them. He was saying, I am that very one. And so his virtuous life uh, was verified by the Spirit in the writing of Scripture. And then he was seen of angels. It says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, he was seen of angels. Speaks of Christ's vicarious Atonement, that is his sufficient, his satisfactory offering on the cross. Now, the angels were present throughout the earthly ministry and life of Christ. It was true when they announced to Mary, to Joseph, and to the shepherds that that, uh, he would be born. But arguably, there wasn't any angelic involvement any more important than those at the empty tomb. Because the empty tomb uh, is what gives absolute veracity to the gospel message. If there wasn't an empty tomb, uh, then we don't have much more of a message than, than any other uh, group of folks. But because of the empty tomb, um, we know that the atonement uh, was sufficient. It was vicarious. It did the job. And in Matthew 28 and verse 5, it says, And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is risen, as he said uh, it goes on to, to uh, say and to intimate. Folks, Jesus actually died for sin. He actually died. Debt was paid by him as God became man, tempted to sin, yet lived a perfect life. He was impeccable. Died for every sinner who would believe, and that death was 
sufficient. To the degree that it was prophesied some 700 years before it happened. In Isaiah 53, speaking of, of the suffering servant that we know was realized in Christ. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He became very close friends with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We don't, we don't even want to, we want to look away. Don't bother me with this. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't count him as worthy. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem, esteem him stricken. Oh, he is worthy about, for being stricken. Crucify him. Crucify him. And if we would have been there, my guess is we would have been saying very much the same thing I would have been. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now who's us all? In case you, you chafe with the five points of the doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, or maybe better stated, uh, particular redemption, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. In case you chafe with that, that bothers you, let me point out in this prophecy 700 years before it was written that there's a particular group of folks for whom this offering was made, for whom this sacrifice was made. And it's all we and us all that he laid on. And everyone has turned to his own way. Now, who are the thus all? Well, unless you are a universalist and you believe that every single human throughout time is redeemed and that there's no such thing as hell, there's no such thing as uh, for uh, that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is, unless you don't see any uh, division in the eternal abiding place of all souls, then the us all would, must be those who have believed. And so, folks, hundreds of years before it happened, and nearly 2,700 years ago, you were on the heart of God. What? What? He cared about me? His atonement, his offering was for me? Have you believed? Any believers here in Christ? Any followers of Christ? Seriously? Keep your hand up. Any followers of the Lord Jesus Christ here on, this, on these premises? What about you all by internet? Raise your hand there at home. I'm not being sarcastic, but genuine. You were on his heart way back when. In the ageless past. And the Lord, God the Father, laid on him the iniquity of those that he foreordained and elected. Absolutely no room for boasting. There's no strutting of stuff in the presence of God. Amen? It is all of him. It's all of grace. After 11 chapters of the doctrine of justification and predestination and, 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 and election. In the book of Romans, 
in chapter 11 and verse 33, the Apostle Paul said to the Roman believers, Oh, the depth of the riches. I, I, can't, I can't fathom. I can't go down how deep it is. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. I try and I try. How unsearchable are his judgments. His ways are past finding out. Relative to the salvation of those for whom Christ died. Are you in that elect group? Say, how do I know? Have you believed? If so, then yes. If you haven't believed, do you desire to believe? Then call upon him. (laughs) For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Romans 10, 13. And so call upon him today. So the angel said, his atonement was good. It was, uh, uh, it, it sealed the deal. Fourthly, <clears throat> this very same one, this one who houses grace in all its glory, was preached unto the nations. Christ's victorious resurrection, I've alluded to it. But what does it mean, preached unto the nations? The book of Acts is one message after another, but it's one message. Christ arose. And if you read through the book of Acts, you will see time and time again that the believers, those who came to the Lord, went out and witnessed. They preached, and they preached the resurrection from the dead. Verse 28 of uh, chapter 28 of Matthew, <clears throat> following what I just read, and the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from dead. Folks, what is the ramification? What's the result of, uh, of the, the doctrine of the resurrection? Come and see. Go and tell. That's it. In, in, in short, it is come and see, i.e. believe, receive, understand, come to grips with, Own that for yourself. Now go and tell the world. And I tell you, folks, if you will do that, and if I will do that, there's just hardly anything else that's going to bring joy to the heart like seeing a a new one born into the family of God. Amen? Now, do we have any any newborns, relative newborns right here in the house? Uh, Nathan, you have, hold up, hold, hold up. Refresh me on his name. Sebastian, of course, I knew that. And he's four months old? Um, what other newborns we have in here? Where, where, where is he? Is he, oh, is he in the nursery? Yeah, oh, yes. Where, where, is she with you? She's in the nursery? Um, you don't know where she is. <laughs> and she's three months old. Any other newborns? You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Don't we get great joy out of those little ones? Don't let, don't, don't walk past, <clears throat> it embarrasses the fool out of me. We're at the mall, we're at a restaurant, uh, uh, and there's a two-month-old, a three-month-old with a bassinet. Kathy doesn't know from anywhere. Immediately, they're best friends. They're, they're exchanging uh, email addresses. She's cooing the baby and this and that. Here, Vic, you'll wanna, you want to hold her, don't you? You want to No, I really don't. She doesn't even ask me anymore. 
<clears throat> because I don't do infants. I want them 18 months so I can get them on the ground, wrestle them, tickle them until they cry, and then give them back to mom. <laughs> but we love little ones. Amen? Don't, this church loves little ones. I mean, you think this is a Catholic church, many babies we have around here. <laughs> we love little ones. Well, when you come and see, that is, you receive of the Lord, and you go and tell, wow, that will put joy in your heart. What does the psalmist say? He that goes forth weeping, bearing precious seed, that almost sounds like procreation, doesn't it? It does. I'm not, I'm not being um, indiscreet here. Bearing precious seed, that is, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a conception that takes place, in that case of, of a soul in the heart, will come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so, preached unto the nations. And you know, that, that's the calling, because I want you to extrapolate back to the, to the X, Y axis. And you're, we're way out here. Someone won you to the Lord. And someone won him or her to the Lord. Yeah. And someone won that person to the Lord. Y'all following where I'm going? To the point of, maybe there is such a thing as apostolic secession. (laughs) And you are to win someone to him. Come and see and then go and tell. Preach unto the nations. And then finally, received up into glory, we see in verse 16. He was received up into glory. His visible ascension intimating his return. Because again, the angels testified of Christ's life and ministry. And when he had spoken unto them these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men, angels, stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. He left from Jerusalem. He left visibly. He left bodily. He's going to return one day to the same place in like manner, in glorious fashion, Revelation chapter 19 teaches us. And Jesus told his apostles in John 14, 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many mansions, dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Folks, we are glory bound. Amen. Christ, uh, the grace of God in all his glory in Christ. Well, we are in him. And so we are as sure for heaven as he was because he said, I'm going now. I'm preparing where you're going to be. And I'm coming back for you so that you can be with me at that point. Now, either that is the case or it's not. And my eternal soul is resting, is banking on that being actual one day. Amen? In fact, if we go on and die physically before that day that he gathers his church up, 
2 Corinthians 5 says, to be absent from this mortal body is to be present with the Lord. So folks, the Lord Jesus Christ is the personification. He is the, uh, the uh, expression, the reality of grace in all its glory. And that begs the question, do you know him? Do you truly know him? Is he the Lord of your life? Not, uh, not questioning the providence of God in his timing. But I don't know that I ever heard this message until I was 20 years old, and yet went to church all the time. Church never preached a message like this, ever. I don't know that anybody knew the Lord in the church where I grew up. Literally, I'm, I'm being, I'm, never one time did I hear such a thing as Isaiah 53, the substitutionary work of Christ. Uh, in fact, at our church, uh, when I grew up, uh, they, uh, they did uh, the play Jesus Christ Superstar, Superstar a, a blasphemous uh, misrepresentation. That's how misguided spiritually, Mel, you remember, they were at that place. And I didn't know any better. Either. So literally 20 years old before I ever really heard the substitutionary work, the suffering servant came and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the punishment, the penalty of those for whom he died. And the gospel, when it is received, changes the life. Old things are passed away. What happens? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Behold, say it with me, all things have become new. You're new. You're, You're a new creation in Christ. The old is passed away. The old man is crucified. And the new comes forth born again he rose from the dead so that he could be reborn in the manger of the human heart has he been reborn in you have you been reborn in him scripture says you must be born again if you have not if that has not taken place in your life where by faith you said lord jesus save me Forgive me. Make me your own. I believe and accept that you died and you rose again to pay my penalty for the wages of sin is death. And Lord Jesus, you died and I want that applied to my account. By faith, I receive you. I accept you. Has that taken place in your life? If not, let today be the day of salvation. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. The clarity of the glory of God in Christ without any controversy there's no debate of the mystery of godliness god became man lived among us perfectly impeccably died a substitutionary death rose again is coming back and for and all who will believe can have life and lord you were quick to add that there is coming and it's here a seducing spirit those who would depart from the faith and give heed to the doctrine of the devil lord i'm so thankful we we had the truth of your word which you've given us may we trust you obey you serve you all our days for your